Blog Talk Radio. Welcome you to the Stop Child Abuse Now Show, sponsored by NASCA, which stands for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. My name is Penelope Bennis, and I am from Sarasota, Florida. Um, my hosting this evening is Kim Lakin from Colorado, and we wish to welcome you to our show tonight. It is Monday, November 27, 2023, and this is scan number 3,321. The type of show we have tonight is an open mic forum, and so we are encouraging you, um, our listeners, to call in and uh, feel free to ask any questions or bring up any topics that are related to the work that we do, which, as you know, is all about child abuse, trauma, prevention, intervention, recovery. So if you'd like to call in, the number to call in is area code 646-595-2118. Again, that is area code 646-595-2118. I'd like to tell you a little bit more about NASCA's mission because we have a single purpose at NASCA, and it's to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas and neglect, and we do so with only two goals. And the first goal, educating the public especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic, worldwide problem that affects everyone. The second goal, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adults survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. So please join our panel. Again, the number to call in is area code 646-595-2118. And uh, we welcome you, even if you're a newcomer, a first-time caller, please call in. If you'd like to ask any questions or share um, anything um, that relates to our mission. So, Kim, I'm going to unmute your mic. And, Philip, I'm going to unmute your mic. So, good evening, Philip. It's good to see you on the line. And, Philip, I was wondering if you had any um, topics, anything that was at the top of your mind that you wanted to talk about. Um, I'll give um, you the first uh, dip. 
you'll give me the first dip. I hate to turn it down, Miss Dennis, but I don't have anything to say. <laughs> I don't have any topics. No problem. I'm not no that problem. good at speaking in public. Oh, you're wonderful, actually, at speaking in public, in my opinion. Um, Thanks. But, uh, no, that's okay. That's okay. We appreciate, you know, obviously always having you on the line. And, um, and if there had been anything top of mind, and there's not, that's okay. But, you know, even when we just, you know, start discussing some of these um, issues that are related to um, recovery and the work that we do, um, they do sometimes um, provoke other um, questions um, and discussion points. So um, feel free, just as we go throughout the show tonight, Philip, to just chime in. I'll leave your mic, mic unmuted, so chime in anytime you wish. And Kim, did you have anything that you wanted to talk about tonight? No, my brain is so full. Okay, no problem. My brain no is problem. just clogged right now. I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, I know no, that. No, it's okay. Yeah, no, go ahead. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Oh no, no, go on. <laughs> well, I was just gonna say that Philip. And, and I don't know if he's in a position that he'd want to talk about this, but he brought up um, something the last, was it last Monday? Or no, it was on Thanksgiving. That's what it was. And I wasn't sure if our guest was going to show up. And um, he'd asked the question. I didn't really get to it. I don't, I haven't done a whole lot of research on it, but, um, you know, just kind of the the whole topic around sexual addiction and, and how you get mm. You know, I guess how you get there, and and there was a podcast, you know, YouTube that I had sent off to Philip during the last, I think it was last week, and um, or la- over the weekend, and so I, you know, I I just felt like I was a little bit unequipped, even, and probably still am because I don't talk on that topic a whole lot, but I wanted to, you know, maybe if Philip was wanting to bring that up again if there's something that we we could talk around that. I'd be happy to. Well, it's like a pornography addiction. So, yeah, I'm sure. I know a lot of people struggle with that. But, yeah, mm-hmm. I've had it for like 10 years, and maybe we could talk about that and how that relates to the, to the, to the main subject. Yeah, absolutely, because we didn't get yeah. a chance to on that night because then Monica – came on, and so um, we were kind of cut off a little bit from that, but yeah. Um, what are some so questions I think, yeah. You know, I, I think, Philip, um, I have a little bit of experience in this, and that um, I do know of someone that I am close to that, and I can't speak on this person's behalf, but um, I can speak to their background, um, and this this individual does have a history of being, an, you know, an adult survivor of child abuse. Um, and um, I'm not sure if it's necessarily uh, childhood sexual abuse, but I definitely know um, that this um, individual grew up with some extreme um, abuse, uh, child abuse in the home. Um, that was the recipient of the maltreatment um, directly and, and also witnessed um, quite a bit of it. And um, 
and as a result, um, in adulthood, has become um, a sex addict. Um, and uh, and so, um, and I'm I'm not only with pornography, although that that's part of it, um, but also in um, just um, having being a, a sex addict and um, um, with using whichever, whatever means possible to um, fulfill that um, need. And um, and I can just tell you from what I know and what I've observed um, is that I, I did speak about this person in counseling um, one day. Um, it wasn't a long conversation, but um, the individual that I know that has a sex addiction um, had even told me it wasn't so much the physical aspect as it was a need to fulfill an emotional void that um, this person had had, um, had had been married somebody who was emotionally unavailable um, and was raised in a home where the mother was emotionally unavailable. And it was just a, a uh, the addiction was really trying to fill a void of of that emotional um, uh, deprivation, if you will. Um, so it wasn't. It was the point is it was less physical um, and more emotionally based. Um, but also, generally speaking, when we think about um, a lot of us, as we've told our own stories, we've talked about numbing behaviors. Um, whether it's drug addiction, alcohol addiction, um, for me, um, food, you know, starvation, um, or just, you know, um, control of food was a way to control, um, or being very, very busy, being so busy that there's no time. Think about, you numb yourself to the reality of the, um, of the pain. And so it's really the the sexual addiction too is just an, another way to numb the pain, um, to become numb. Um, so that is what I know. And I just wanted to share that with you both and Kim or Philip, I don't know if either of you want, wish to add something, but I did want to, I did have a little bit of experience in this. Well, I guess that people who suffer from porn addiction have food addictions too. And I guess it's an intimacy disorder. I've heard, a couple of coaches online say that pornography is an intimacy disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I know that growing up, my, my dad did. I know he did because of things that I've seen, and you know, as a child. But, um, I I feel like I've been so far removed about from it, so I'm I'm really glad, Penelope. Thank you for speaking on it a little bit because I don't really know how to speak into that. I mean, I can be completely open with you, and I can tell you, Philip, though, that as a child who was sexually abused, I felt um, there were times that I had to masturbate. And it was even at school. So it was, you know, I'd go into the bathroom. And I used to think, well, the teachers have to know what I'm doing. So I think that, you know, 
like you said, it's all connected there. All of the abuse, all of the you know sexual abuse, all of everything that you've gone through. It makes sense that it it comes out some way. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's been things like smoking, you know, that I which I quit smoking a couple of years ago, which I'm so proud of myself. But, um, you know, and things like that, you're, I think we're just prone, like, you know, like you said, we're prone to um, to addiction. Or like you said, one of you were just saying that, Philip, I think you said it too, we're prone to uh, addictions because of what we've been through. So it doesn't have to, it doesn't make sense to us, but I guess it makes sense because it's all together. I don't know. <laughs> That's all I have. Well, I, I appreciate what you shared, just shared, um, Kim. And I do think, too, that a lot of times we just, we, we, as behaviors, especially in children, and you mentioned, you know, taking some, some bathroom breaks and in, in, in when you were a young child in school, um, you know, a lot of times we, we act out what has happened to us. Um, we, we recreate that. Um, so that's, that's not unusual at all. I think, you know, you know, Philip just said in, in terms of um, food and, and pornography addiction, sex addiction, it's an intimacy um, disorder. Um, and that's interesting. I've never read that term. I'm going to have to do some research on that myself because I'm intrigued. But when you, you think about it, and I'm not, I'm not minimizing alcohol or drug addiction at all or the difficulty um, of recovery. Um, it's very difficult to, to, to recover from any kind of an addiction. Um, and it's, it's a journey. You know, I understand and we all understand that. But I think with food and, and sex, um, especially food, we need food to live. Um, so you have to learn how to, you know, to really rewire your brain and, and to, to navigate that relationship because you need food to live and people need connection to live. Um, and so, you know, those addictions, um, that's very difficult to learn how to um, navigate through that. Um, and this is why I just, you know, I'm thankful that we talk about these things on NASCA and we, we have each other's resources to help with, you know, our own experience and what we've learned and what we know. Um, but definitely, you know, recovery um, as an adult sort of child abuse, and there's so many um, aspects, if you will, um, of our own individual recoveries. Um, and it's definitely a marathon. And, um, you know, recovery is, if, if we've numbed ourselves to pain, um, that's one of the sub, you know, sub processes, if you will, in the recovery journey for an adult survivor of child abuse. Many of us are recovering from from addictions, from different addictions. Those were numbing. Um, we use them as numbing um, tools um, to survive. Uh, so, um, but I appreciate the question. And uh, I welcome anybody else that wishes to call in. If you have any um, 
thoughts or input on this subject, please feel free to call in. The number is to call in at 646-595-2118. So I have a question for you. Wait, you go ahead. (laughs) No, you do it. You go ahead. Um, I kind of felt embarrassed when I would find that stuff, like uh, I thought my dad was doing it. So, like, I was like, I said, like, well, I'm never going to do that. But it's kind of hard. It's kind of easier to say I'm never going to do that because it's really hard not to do it. Yeah, exactly. And that's, we take a day, but one day at a time. Sometimes it's one hour at a time. What were you going to say, Kim? Um, well, I was just going to say that I, I think definitely seeing it as a child, because I did as well, like you're saying, Philip, I, I saw it as a child. And I think that normalizes it a lot. So it makes you think, oh, well, since they're watching this or they're looking at these magazines, that must be okay. And when I'm an adult, I can do that. And it's, you know, psychologically something in your mind that is then downplayed at all. So my one, does that make sense? Yes. You didn't really start. Like, yeah, you didn't really start. You didn't start as a child going, oh, I'm going to grow up and have a porn addiction. You know, <laughs> and so it's all part of that. And I think keeping yourself busy is one way that would help, you know, that is be getting out and doing other things than, you know, maybe if, cause it's, and yeah, getting out and doing other things. The other part I was going to say too is normalizing um, natural or healthy sexual, um, yeah, sexual contact. And if you are not in a relationship with yourself, it's fine. That's that's something else that is such a stigma. And I'm, you know, I want to say, I'm sorry, this is a trigger warning. I know it could be a trigger warning to some people, but, you know, if you talk to certain therapists, you know, sex therapists, it's very healthy for your body the act of sex. And it's not only healthy, but then you connect. So it makes sense that if you're not with somebody, you know, that you would want to, you have that urge still because it's a natural, you know, human urge to have that feeling of wanting sex. And then, you know, being able to see somebody on, you know, on the TV makes it a lot easier and also makes it, you know, more normal because you're not, just by yourself. Does that make sense? Am I making mm-hmm. sense? <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah, I. That's kind of my take on it. I don't. Not my professional take, but just my take on, on that. Because I think that I did feel as a younger, as a child and and a teen, maybe even into my twenties too, that that was normal. It's fine if you want to watch porn. You you know, and even getting married, I married somebody who's very, very prudish, really. (laughs) And so this has been a whole different transformation, you know, for me the last 34 or five years that I've been with him. 
Um, but I did think that that was normal. He he did tell me that wasn't normal at one point, and you know, because I wanted it to, to come into our marriage to help our marriage, and it wasn't something that he wanted to do. So in my mind, it was normal then too. So I don't it yeah. That's what I have to say. That That's sense, what I think, Kim. About that. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to help our marriage. So, Phil, I don't know if you had any other comments or questions about this. Oh, he dropped. Maybe he'll, he'll come back. Oh, there he is. He accidentally dropped. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't even looking at the board, so. <laughs> no, he just dropped. He just wonder- came back. Oh. So I'll put him back on. I'll put him back on. Hey, Phil, if you heard it. Sorry, I had an incoming phone call. It was from the Cube Mental Health Services. I never heard of him. Well, I think... Anyways. What were you guys talking about? Kim had shared Kim had shared some more, you know, additional thoughts on, you know, pornography. Um and we were talking about, you know, healthy sexual relationships versus um disordered um patterns, if you will, um, that, you know, are um, um part of the, you know, the numbing um or addictive um part of uh, the sexual um addiction. But um you know, I think I think that is, um, and some of us in recovery, we have to learn where where the line is, um, and what's um, healthy um, and what's not, and that's just part of also the the part of the process of recovery, is um, is learning how because um, we're really having to learn and reteach our and, and teach ourselves. For me, I felt just personally, it was I had to really be reborn, if you will, and relearn everything over again because what I grew up with, I thought was normal. Um, And so I realized through my process of recovery that a lot of things actually were not normal. Um, And this is just sort of a, um, I had to sort of relearn all these, a lot of the different uh, concepts. Um, And I had to step out of myself and and look inward um, and and look at patterns and then interrupt some of them um and uh and learn about what healthy um healthy choices healthy boundaries um and that had to also do with um um you know physically um and we're talking about sexual addiction right now so um but I did want to mention it's just learning what those boundaries are and and what constitutes you know more of a, a healthy um uh relationship with uh one's body and with um, one's own um, sexuality is, for me, it was part of the of the recovery process. Um, I had to re-raise myself, if you will. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But um, Kim, thanks, you know, thanks for bringing up that question that, you know, and topics that Philip brought up that wasn't really fully, uh, we didn't really, you didn't really close the loop on that because um, your guest showed up 
um, in the last show, but I, I think it's a it's a topic we really haven't discussed that much, and I think it's important to talk about um, because we know as um, adult survivors of, of child abuse and of sexual child abuse specifically that a lot of times um, one of the adult manifestations of that is either um, sexual addiction and promiscuity or complete um, lack of interest in sex and complete abstinence, um, kind of freezing of the body. So um, it is something that is um, an adult manifestation um, and can uh, run on either side of the spectrum, and and it's something that um, it's not, you know, it's a reasonable um, manifestation in an adult survivor of if you think about what uh, we went through as children. Um, and so there's nothing to be ashamed of, but I think it's really important to talk about it. Um, and for us to also know that we're not alone in this. Uh, you're not the only one. Uh, you're not alone. Um, but this is something that um, um, some of us have faced um, or we know others um, that have faced it. And um, it's not... Um, it's not unusual. In fact, it's it's very it's very common. Yeah. Um, Philip, did you hear what I was saying about when I'm I'm sorry, Philip, yeah, my just just put it in. Um, did you hear what I was saying about um my the beginning of my marriage and when I felt like my marriage was falling apart a little bit and I I did think that that would be a good tool to use. Um, and I was told it wasn't. So, you know, there that was my mind frame, and I think that um, that came from, like, you know, we were just talking about that, came from my childhood and being sexually abused. So when I am struggling in my marriage because it's not, you know, I, I don't ever get asked to have sex <laughs> ever, um, then I wanted to use that tool. So it, I don't think it's an unreasonable thing, just like Penelope said, to to turn to, even though we do need to know that there's healthy boundaries. And I guess what my my other question would be to you then, because I think this is what kind of sets up the whole negativity over pornography, is do you think that that makes you think differently of women? I mean, is there more of a, but yeah, is I guess, just in any way, does that make you think more negatively, probably, than, than positively of women because of that? And you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but... No, not really. Not really. No. Okay. Well, that's good. I mean... Like, how would I... Because, but how would I think negatively of it? How would it make me think negatively of it? Negatively of women? Well, I don't know specifically. I just think... Well, and I don't even know porn these days because I honestly I really haven't watched anything for years. But I feel like back when I did have an interest, there was more. It seemed like it was um, uh, like the woman was always dominated. So the woman was always you know put down, and it was always you know the man you're gonna do this. So. It was just more of a, I guess some of the ones maybe I found were just more aggressive and I didn't necessarily like that. But um, so I guess people, and I've heard people say that that 
that aggression is what kind of, you know, puts pornography in the bad light. So if it's, I mean, well, and it's just a whole different era than when I was, when I had access, you know, to it. It was just something that you could maybe watch late, late night on TV on a certain, you know, if you had that channel. So just when even I think the Internet and HBO and all that was just getting started. So it was early on, and um, you could find something without paying. I know you can now all the, all the time. But. <laughs> so I guess that's just what I was – that's how I was thinking as far as the negativity goes. I don't know what you watch or what, <laughs> you know. And if it is, like I, like I was saying before you, you got disconnected, is that is it somewhat of a healthy – also sexual as you know part of a healthy sexuality easy to see another human you know on on the tv and that helps you know that makes you feel more comfortable and so that's what happens i don't know that's just my god what's that thank you for sharing kim i didn't know if yeah if you had heard that before, but yeah, that was just the negativity that I did now. I don't think anything less of you because of what you watch, because I don't know even what you watch. So. And there's a lot of people out there that like people to be rough. So, you know, and, and again, I'm, I'm sorry if it triggers. I'm, I'm not trying to trigger anybody on here. It's a sensitive topic, like everything that we talk about, but we don't talk about this topic a lot, and um, it would, you know, it probably does need to be talked about more, just the whole topic of sex in, in general. Um, Maybe have more I'm help. Trying to stop. I'm trying to stop watching it because I feel stronger and more, like, I feel like people are attracted to me more, male and female, you know, in just like a general sense when I don't watch it. And, yeah, I'm just trying to stop because I feel better when I don't do it. Hmm. Well, good that you. Um, that's good, Phil. It's good, Phil, though, that you are in touch with how the impact of it has on you and making your own decisions to make those changes. That's fantastic. Kind of, uh, it's kind of hard to quit when you don't have somebody like your girlfriend or whatever. Yeah, it's true. Well, yeah, that was kind of my point. Of I, I can see where somebody could do that, you know, watch porn because they're single and it's more fun to look at somebody when you're doing that than it is to do it on your own, So you know, or have an image. So it's not that it's a bad thing, but it is if you feel it is. So I think that's the point that I should make is that, however you're feeling about it, because maybe it is too much. And, you know, if, if that is become an addiction, like other things can, alcohol or whatever, then it is too much. And so it's like Penelope said, I'm proud of you for recognizing that and for, you know, being aware, because that's the first step, you know, of anything, being aware of it. 
Well, great, great information, and this is a very good topic. Thank you, Philip. I want to segue. For the show? Oh. I'm sorry. Can you repeat that, Philip? Do you, do you think it's too inappropriate for the show? I I don't think it's inappropriate for the show. No. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm so. Sure we'll I, hear I, about it. <laughs> Yeah, if it is, we'll hear about it, but I don't think so because I think this is just, I mean, we're talking about, you know, um, you know intervention, prevention, and recovery. Well, this is part of recovery. Um, part of recovery is uh, talking about um, addressing addictions and numbing behaviors and um, our experience with it and the questions we have around it. So I don't think I, I – this has come up before. Um, it hasn't come up as often, but it's, it's come up before, and, and this is not something that's foreign um, in terms of the, the, the realm of um, um, uh, hurdles, if you will, or, or you know, things that, that are addressed during the recovery process. So, um, and that's what I meant by saying you are not alone. Um, and, and that fact, this is not uncommon. It's not uncommon. So, no, it's not inappropriate um, talk about it. Okay. But I think, but I think it's, the root of it is less of um, the specificity of what it is, but it's, it's more about um, the, the numbing behavior. You know, why do we, why do we immerse ourselves or why have we in the past immersed ourselves in a behavior that numbs us to our lives, that takes our mind away from, you know, um, focusing on certain things, you know, what drives us to numb the mind and why? Um, and it's part of, it's just part of the process of recovery. Cool. But I wanted to segue, um, if I could, um, because, you know, you bring up, you know, we're talking about um, healthy human sexual relationship, sexual relationship, and I really want to talk about um, the intimacy part or just um, even more about um, the impact on an adult survivor of child abuse and some of the adult manifestations of this um, this is not exactly addiction, but for me, um, because I was physically and sexually abused, um, there are certain things that I, I, I still am working um, in my recovery every day about how do I navigate through this. So, for example, if someone is um, someone touches me without my consent, um, meaning someone in the store taps me on the back from behind with their finger and touches me. And it takes me by surprise. And I didn't give that person my consent to put their hand on my body. I am completely disintegrated. I'm disintegrated in my mind. I just feel like I want to scream. And I want to say, do not touch me. I have a very visceral reaction to that. I don't like being in a large crowd of people and I don't like having people bump into me. I don't like people getting too close to me. 
You know, I know there's a jury, there's a Seinfeld episode, and if you ever watched Seinfeld, Philip, but or Kim, but you know, people invading your personal space. I, I don't. That is a trigger for me. I don't like people to get too close to me, physically in proximity. I like to have my space. Um, so this, these are things that I struggle with every single day, and I'm working on them in my recovery. Um, I also don't like. There's something about when someone either touches me with a soft touch or starts fidgeting with their fingers and touching their fingers in such a way, not touching me, but touching themselves. Like if they're fidgeting or scratching themselves for a long period, I don't, it makes my skin crawl. And it's very hard to explain. Um, I'm not sure why I have those triggers, but I think something's happened to me that while I was asleep that I fully am, you know, my body hasn't forgotten, but my mind doesn't recall, um, but my body has a visceral reaction. So I just wanted to bring that up as, as well because there are a lot of different, you know, reactions and, and um, uh, responses that I've just explained. Um, I'm high, I have this heightened sensitivity. Um, it's really a trigger. These are all real triggers for me. And I'm still working to this in my recovery, daily, daily work. So I wanted to share that. I don't know, if Kim or Philip, you have had any similar experiences to that. And if, hopefully I've articulated yes. it clearly. Um, thank you for sharing. Some things make my skin crawl too. Like it could be the way somebody's moving or like the way they're talking or noise they make, you know. But, yeah, I have mm-hmm. the same reaction. Mm-hmm. And you, mm-hmm. Kim? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, I'm I'm sure I do because I guess I can't think of it right now, but I'm sure I do have something. Nothing's just coming right to mind. But um, I know that I get triggered, you know, around my even my family. So I think the crowd thing, like Penelope was saying, I don't know if it's specifically touching, but maybe it is, and I just haven't ever paid attention to that. But I don't like big crowds, and I used to, you know, throw myself into big crowds all the time. And um, and I still do to some degree when I go do my classes, you know, a crowd of 35. However, that's a different because it's not me having to come up with something to say. I know what I'm saying. I'm at the front of the class, you know. And so that crowd is different than going to – Disneyland or, you know, something like that, our, our park over here, Elitch's. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. That, that is hard because there's just so many people. And you don't, I don't know who is going to come up on me or I'm always worried. So, yeah, I, can, I guess I can kind of go into how it happens with me. I think that I protect my personal belongings and my space when I'm in that, that situation, pretty good. I'm pretty guarded. I'm just really guarded. Probably to mm-hmm. the point that I don't have as much fun at what we're doing either because I'm worried about that. So that could be, yeah, that's probably exactly like what you guys are talking about. <laughs> yeah, like I don't have a problem teaching in front of a classroom or even speaking in front of a group of people because I'm in control and, and I've, 
A, I've chosen that, and B, I normally, if you're the, if you're speaking, you you have more um, autonomy over where you stand, how close you are to people. So I'm definitely, um, I'm definitely, um, I think if it's more of a controlled environment, and I have you know my own control, um, then I'm okay. But it's like what you mentioned, Kim, walking around Disneyland or going to an art fair or something like that where there are crowds and crowds of people and people are bumping into you. Um, I do not. I have a very, very difficult time navigating myself through those um, types of crowds, and I tend to stay away. Did you find that more as you got older that you recognized that? I wish I would have recognized it when I was younger, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely gotten, it's definitely gotten, I don't know if I've become more aware of it as I'm older, but I think it's more, that actually it's just become more pronounced. I mean, I don't even like getting my pedicure, a a pedicure. I don't like people touching my feet. Um, I don't like, I don't like that. that. Yeah, I don't like that. And, um, if I have physical, I've had to have physical therapy post some of my spine surgeries and I have, I have to, I will tell the physical therapist that I am an adult survivor of child abuse and that I need to know when they're going to be touching my body, what they're going to be doing. And they also, I can't have a soft touch at all. Like I need to have, it needs to be something that is not soft touch because that's triggering for me. Um, and, and I, and I, and I will tell them you have to, you know, check back in with me like once a minute. And, and I have actually during physical therapy sessions had to tell them to stop. And I've had to just stop the session because it's not, it it just doesn't feel right for me. But then again, I've built trust with them and I've had, I've had some physical therapists, but I, I think it's the trust building and that I can go through a physical therapy session and they can be working on a, an area and I can be fine. Um, but I, to answer your question, I think it's become more pronounced. So the older that I am, especially with things, like I said, like I don't like a, really a massage. I don't like pedicures, people touching my feet. I just don't like that I'm, at all. And I used to be able to get Does pedicures when I was younger. Does it change if it's somebody like, you like or what or not maybe um if i trust if there's a lot of trust and i know them i'm a little bit more comfortable um but um with pedicures i think there's um it's hard i i don't it i don't like it i just yeah it's it's just not i just can't get i used to be able to get pedicures too philip and kim but i was i was I use that I can't anymore. The older, the older. So I guess no. Something about touching the feet. Um, I don't. Also, I have arthritis in one of my one of my feet, and it's painful. So I think because of pain in that area, I just can't have anybody near it, if that makes sense. Because um, it may inflict more pain. Um, I, I think it's more of a protect a protection that I've kind of placed within myself. Yeah, that makes sense. I can't do pedicures either, and I I wonder if that has something to do with it because I've never thought about. I just like I just don't like them, and 
that maybe that does have a lot to do with it, and maybe also that plays a part in me liking um, acupuncture. That I would rather go to acupuncture than go get a massage mm. or get a pedicure for sure. But get a, I, I don't get very many massages, and I have an aunt who's a massage therapist who gives them to me for free if I drive out to her, which is just a half an hour away, but I, I just, I don't enjoy it that much. So I wonder if mm-hmm. the, the fact that the acupuncturist isn't actually touching me too much with his hand. I mean, they do a little bit, you know, but it's not all about that. It's about going to the, the problem and getting to the problem. And so, yeah, that's interesting. I've never thought about that either. So these are good things to bring up. Start, start me thinking. <laughs> well, and I just, you know, when I, when I'm given a, you know, when I'm given a pedicure, you know, certificate, you know, by, by someone or even by my husband or my kids, like, oh, go get, you know, go get a pedicure and here's a gift card. I think, oh my gosh, you know, I, I, I'm thankful, but I don't know how to tell people. I don't get pedicures, you know, I can't, I can't stand it. It's not a pampering thing for me. It's, it's more of like a traumatic thing for me. You know, I just can't have somebody touching my feet or touching me. Um, perhaps though, I think, I think that is, you know, what am I saying? The more recovery I've done, though, the more I feel like I have to, you know what, I'm not going to apologize for that. It is what it is. So while I may have become more sensitive to it and not in terms of not wanting anybody to touch my feet, you know, it's it's become um, just the touching part of it has become um, more invasive to me. Um, on the flip side, and this is maybe the the great part of recovery, is that I just feel that I don't need to apologize for it, you know. Um, I'm not ashamed of it anymore, and and I'm not going to, you know, feel that shame. It It, it is what it is. Um, I have the right to say, you know, don't touch my feet, and I don't have to explain myself to anyone. So, um, but it's also nice to know that I'm not alone. <laughs> even though I wouldn't wish, you know, this on anyone um, in terms of why, um, of course, the experience of being an adult survivor of, of child abuse, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But it's also nice to know that I'm not alone in in having these um, triggers, I guess you could call them, or just boundaries that I have to adhere to for myself. Yeah. Makes it nice. No, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. It really is. Do you like massages or and things like that, Philip? Or do you find that bothers you too? Um, I've only had two massages, so it was a while ago. I really don't remember what they felt like. Yeah. Then it must not have been bad. Uh, Maybe. <laughs> or maybe but it was. Anything. I don't know. Maybe it anything. wasn't bad, and then I said maybe it is bad. I don't know. <laughs> okay. 
I tried to get my friend to call in, but she's eating dinner. Oh, well, thanks for trying. No problem. Yeah. Well, great. Well, you know, one thing I wanted to do, though, is um, if if you guys are both okay moving on from this topic, is just, you know, really talk about um, just recovery um, in general and, uh, you know, some facts about recovery because we talk about, um, as adult survivors in our mission statement, um, it's about child abuse prevention, intervention, recovery. And so when I tell people about NASC and about the work that we do here, people look at me and they look like they're, they're interested and curious. Okay, so you're an adult survivor of child abuse. And they can understand that concept. But they don't necessarily understand the concept of why would an adult survivor of child abuse need to go into recovery or what is recovery and why is it important. So I want to take this directly from the NASCO website and read it um, about recovery because a primary mission um, at NASCA is to help abuse people who have reached maturity get into recovery. So if you're a man or a woman who experienced sexual abuse, violence, severe neglect, or emotional trauma in your youth and are still suffering its lasting effects, we want to help you have a happy, healthy, productive life in meaningful relationships. So what does lasting effects mean? Um, and I don't know, Kim, if, if you um, have any thoughts on what lasting effects mean. Um, I, I, I can certainly speak to that, but or Philip, but I'm curious if you know what that means when we talk about lasting effects. Um, well, like when I was a kid, I thought the abuse would just stop, but it didn't. And it kept going, and so did the effects keep going, so that's long lasting effects, right? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yes. That's definitely part of it, absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, I think as a younger person, I probably thought, okay, once I get into recovery, once I find, you know, the the one therapist, once I do all this work and get all better, I'm never going to have any other problems and with this issue. And I feel like in my life anyway that that hasn't been the case. There's still going to be issues that come up around that issue that are triggering. And, um, you know, my my daughter is a, is a perfect example of that because she is mad directly at me, even though she'll say, I don't blame you for the abuse. I blame you for not telling me sooner. 
okay, that is still putting the blame on me. She's not seeing that for one, mm-hmm. but um, that's point that that's brought up a lot in me, and it's brought up, you know, why am I still fighting this issue? I guess would be the biggest one because I thought once maybe I told my story and and my kids and everybody knew about it that everything would be great. They would support me. They would love me, you know, love on me even a little bit more because I, I kind of need that. But um, that didn't happen. So that has brought up all these other triggers. And then also we just put my dad on hospice today too. So that, that brings up other issues. And um, I haven't brought that up much because I'm just trying not to burst out in tears. So I've, I've gotten to a place where I'm not crying now. Um, but it's, mm. it's not a finality. Like I was, I was talking to Penelope, you know, in the beginning. It, that's not even a finality. So it's like even I'm, I've got this love-hate wait, relationship with my dad. I mean, it's pretty simple as that, I guess, it, when you think about it, because I'm tired of – feeling like I'm the one that has to take care of him. And then I'm also tired of people who are not anywhere trauma-informed always telling me, you know, you don't have to take care of him. And I know my boundaries. I know what I, you know, the limits I've set with him for sure are, are a lot more than they were in my 20s. But um, these, so the recovery, I guess, in my eyes, is something that is going to be ongoing that there, and and I think it's taken the last, you know, to be almost 45, 50 and, you know, last 10 years to recognize that, recognize that pattern. So um, it's good if, you know, younger people could recognize that pattern, that it is, yes, you are going to have moments where you feel like you are completely healed and nothing ever could ever make you not, feel that way that you did again. And then something else happens around that um, trigger and, and triggers you again. So I think recovery needs to be something, at least I feel in my life, and I've heard many people say this, that needs to be ongoing. So it's not just, oh, I feel good, and then I can stop all the medications I'm taking and, and not ever see a therapist. I um I haven't seen a therapist for about a month and I'm about ready to go crazy and so I'm like that is definitely something that I need to make sure is happening sooner rather than later. I have an appointment in January, but I'm like that might not work. So my recovery looks like recognizing when I need to get the help that I need. That is recovery mm-hmm. to me, I guess. Not I'm going to feel better forever and nothing ever is going to bother me. Good point. That's absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, for me also just to realize that, you know, recovery is a process and it's it's ongoing. Um, And I mentioned this before, Philip and Kim, but I, when I started, you know, realizing that there were things that I needed to address from my childhood, um, I was in the mindset that, okay, so I'm going to go to therapy and I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to bring them all up and we're going to, you know, I'm going to address this and deal with this and then I'm going to move on. I'm going to be done 
you know, I'm going to work hard just like I've worked hard in my life to accomplish something like, you know, professionally, um, work on a contract, work really hard, get it done. Okay. You know, move on to the next thing in my life. Well, recovery as an adult survivor of child abuse, that is not um, the template <laughs> for recovery um, as an adult survivor of child abuse. Um, uh, the work template is not the recovery template, if you will. It's not a project that you can just decide that you're going to nail, you know, in a few months and then put to bed and move on with your life. It is something that is ongoing. Um, and the best way I can describe it, and these are my words, um, is that I am, it's like a loss. It's a loss. It's like grieving a loss. Um, and because we did suffer significant losses, um, many of us lost um, our childhoods, our innocence, um, our ability to develop into healthy, adjusted adults as children. And we're, we're doing that in our recovery process as adults. We're re-raising ourselves. But um, that was something that we were not afforded as children, um, and that's a loss. Um, so, um, you know, if we were to think about um, losing a loved one, we know that um, grief um, ebbs and flows, um, but it never fully goes away. And that's what recovery is as an adult survivor of child abuse. Um, it is it is living with the loss and learning how to move forward. Um, you don't move on. You just move forward. Um, but every day is a day in recovery and moving forward. Um, so I, I really, um, I would, uh, you know, analogize um, recovery uh, as um, a loss, you know, to, to comparatively, because it is. It is grieving a loss, so. Um, but Kim, I agree with you, that, and I, I'm saying all this because I agree with you that um, it's um, we're all in recovery as adults from child abuse. Those of us that have been you know, that are doing the work, they're addressing it, and we all recognize that um, it's just you know seeking therapy, especially during times of crisis and times of hardships like um, what you're experiencing and you just met what you just mentioned um, that is more than ever um, is when we know we need to draw from our resources in order to help us get through these periods of time and so um, I hope that you um, you know get the support sooner rather than later that you need I I know it's so hard to have to wait for someone that you need to speak with. So oh, that happens for you very, very quickly. Yeah, I mean, just I would not have... it. I think it's huge. <laughs> yeah. Mhm. Well, I mean, with as you know, I've had a rough. You know, our family had a rough couple years or a year and a half with my husband's diagnosis, and um, and all that, um, all the impact from that, um, and um. And during that time, too, we, we, you know, had deaths of parents and things like that. And um, 
I absolutely um, needed additional support and and sought it out um, in terms of therapy, and um, it really did help. So I hope that you get that because I would not have been able to really make it through, I think, in one piece without it personally. And so I, 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 you know, it's... I really hope that you get that that support. Either that or I'll be in the hospital. So, you know, mental work. But you won't be able to get a hold of me. I know I shouldn't joke about that. But, I mean, it's almost the truth. Because I almost feel that at times. I feel like if I can't get this help that I need. And, um, and I don't know what made me think that I could get through November and December without any kind of help. It's just ridiculous because I I know that there are already triggers that are going to come up. My brother's birthday was the other day, and my aunt's birthday was on Thanksgiving, and mm-hmm. my aunt, you know, my so I just know that there's going to be all this stuff going on. But yet I I thought, oh well, I could probably handle a month or so, and um, I know now I'm looking at it going, no, oh, that was stupid. So recognizing. Again, I think just going back to that, recognizing when you need that help. Go ahead. So, did you have anything that you want to add? Me? No. Well, I have a therapist, and I have an appointment with him tomorrow. And sometimes he's helpful, and sometimes he's not helpful. No. And that pretty much sums it up, for sure. <laughs> and I think that goes kind of goes back to what we've talked about in the past of um, are they trauma-informed enough to continue to help you even when they get frustrated because they can't see why you just can't change and everything should be okay. So if you have that kind of therapist that is, even though they may get a little frustrated, you know, this, but then they come back, and they are there for you, then they're probably a pretty good therapist if you can, you know, if you can navigate all of that. But I agree with you. There are going to be times, you know, what Penelope said, there are going to be times that we just don't necessarily get what we need. And I don't know if that is because of the not being trauma-informed or what that is, because I think a lot of them aren't, most of them aren't. Yeah, well, I, I think, think it's because they're not trauma. Go ahead, Penelope. No, go ahead, Penelope. Go ahead. I think it's what you said, but I'm just running off of what you said because that's how we learn, right? But I think it's because they're not trauma-informed. Because I think that they sh- well, I think that they should be trauma-informed. But I, it's like it's like it's like having a mismatch with your therapist with your therapy appointment, your therapist if if they're not trained, if they're not trauma-informed. It's kind of like having a mismatch. Yeah. Yeah, I I think you really need to. They're out there. I just think it, it takes a lot of, um, well, not research, but asking the right questions and, and just making sure that... Um, they are trauma-informed for the kind of help that you need. And I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, NASCA, we are not, we are not, 
live therapists on the line, you know, 24-7. But we all are adult survivors of child abuse, and we have that experience um, um, in terms of our own expertise, which is is our experience. Um, And we understand that that to me, just just feeling like I wasn't alone was very, very helpful to be able to speak with someone that had walked in almost my exact same shoes. Um, so while I have a trauma-informed therapist who's very, a very good fit for me, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't even enough. NASCA really helped supplement that part of what I felt was missing, which was someone who really could stand in my shoes and understand exactly what I was going through. Um, and that was the first time I never felt alone was when I first came to NASCA because um, I felt alone my whole entire life. I didn't feel really that I had come home, if you will, into uh, a place where people understood um, and and could just, um, I could really articulate and communicate these experiences and these feelings without um, becoming frustrated and feeling like I hadn't been heard or understood. Um, um, so I think, I think, you know, rely on NASCA is what I'm saying, rely on the membership here because there also can help um, in terms of just knowing exactly what some of these emotions are like and, um, and what you're going through. Our experiences might not be exactly the same, but a lot of times the feelings are, are, are very much the same. Well said, Penelope. <laughs> so, Philip or Kim, do you have anything else that you'd like to discuss tonight? Honesty. Honesty. Can you be a little bit more yeah. specific, Philip, in, in terms of what you mean by honesty? Well, when I was a kid, I had to lie because of some situations that my dad would, would like, force upon me. Like, he'd, like, yell at me and tell me to tell the truth, even though I was telling the truth. So he'd tell me, he'd keep yelling at me and tell me to, so I just had to make up a lie. So that kind of, like, made me be dishonest throughout my whole life. Not as a lifestyle, but mm-hmm. as a communication style. So maybe we can talk about that. You know, Kim, do you have anything to, to contribute to that? Because I have one thing to say, but I want to hear from you first. Got to get unmuted. No, I would just say that I think it's hard to believe that people are being honest a lot of times for me. And that could be maybe I jumped the gun at first, but then I sit back and realize that there is something else to that usually. So honesty, um, I don't I guess, I guess it can be good and bad. It depends. I know I've always told my kids to be honest with me as they were growing up and not, you know, not do, get in trouble, not do certain things and skip school. And, um, and they my girls were. Then my son came about. 
<laughs> and he wasn't ready to do that. He wasn't ready to conform to the regular high school. And so um, he, and he struggled with telling me. So I think knowing that you also need to build that communication from the beginning and um, being aware of that, I don't think that I was very well, just very well, I hadn't done enough therapy. I hadn't done enough work on myself when I started having kids. And so that made it hard that way. And I also know that there have been times that I've had to not be honest with Andy too. So, oh, the other thing I was going to go back to is that I know from my childhood, as you were talking about, seeing your dad do certain things or you having to lie for him, that I felt that definitely in my home. It was, nobody could ever come over because I knew there were drugs all over my house. And I was, you know, that wasn't a normal childhood. But um, I always thought it was. So I think that that made me have to not tell the truth. So then I do think there are times that it's easier to just go, oh, you know, say something that will also make, whatever topic it is, kind of fly over and not have to get into it or whatever. So um, I think also just being, you need that to be in a marriage. You need honesty and transparency. So it's something that would be very worthwhile to work on before you got into a relationship even, you know, or a marriage or start having kids. Because I think that that could have been maybe even a little bit of where my block is with my girls. Is maybe they don't feel that, at some, you know, at some point even early on, I wasn't available enough. Like Penelope was said, emotionally available. I realized that there are times and I know a lot of times when the kids were growing up because I was struggling mentally. I didn't have that all figured out. And then, you know, things in the world were happening around me, you know, or in my family were happening and um, things that I had to take care of. So, I, you know, being very aware that you need to be honest with everybody and have that open relationship with anybody you come in contact with to be able to have any kind of a relationship with them. Does that make sense? Did I go a roundabout way like I do? Makes sense. Oh, that was good. Okay, thank you. Yes, it was. Well, you know, Philip and Kim, I, um, when I was a child, I mean, you know, you'll do anything to survive in a volatile environment and in a dangerous environment and an abusive environment and physically abusive environment. So I was definitely afraid of ever causing trouble or getting in trouble. So if I did do something that I knew that I would get in trouble for um, and I was asked about it, I would lie. And I would, you know, just to uh, evade, you know, the, the consequences of making a mistake, you know, Kids make a lot of mistakes. You know, kids get into trouble. They, not big trouble. I mean, like, you know, mischief. I mean, we're curious and we're growing and we're learning. And, you know, I mean, of course, not all behavior is, is um, 
appropriate, but a lot of times, you know, kids throw a ball at a house and break a vase, and that's just, you know, life happens, and they'll learn to be more careful next time. But, um, you know, little offenses like that were severe punishments in my home. So I would lie if I was asked, did you break a vase? No. And then, of course, I was always caught, and then the consequences were terrible. Um, so in terms of honesty, Philip, I mean, in terms of being a child growing up in the home, I did, you know, um, to protect myself, lied on a number of occasions when asked a direct question because I was so fearful. And um, in talking about this um, to my mental health professional, to a ther- to my therapist, um, he told me um, the advice given to parents when they have a child that's lying, that's fibbing or that's lying constantly or that lying is a pattern. You know what the advice was to the parents? Anybody guess? Um, Kim, can you guess? I really can't guess. Sorry, I wasn't paying attention. Yeah. Sorry, I wasn't following. Okay. There's some honesty <laughs> for you. <laughs> no, I think, well, I would just say to punish them. I don't know. The 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 advice to parents how to get your child to stop lying. The advice to the parents from the the medical community was is as follows: Stop asking questions. You want your child to stop lying, then stop asking them questions. And if you think about it, that's brilliant. Um, yeah, no communication. Well, I mean, asking a child a question is putting them on defensive. What do you do when you're on defensive, right? You know, you play his own defense. Um, you know, so it was a perpetual state of fear in terms of, of that. So I think in a way to espouse honesty is almost, you know, the opposite of what you would think, but the way to espouse honesty and trust and the feeling of security is is to stop the interrogation, right? Um, to stop the interrogation. I mean, a child can come to a parent and be honest and disclose things if they're not fearful of the consequences. I mean, to me, that's very, very basic. It's logical. Um, but when you get in a pattern, right, like, Philip, you know, if, if you had to lie, well, why did you, you know, why do kids lie? Kids lie because they're fearful of consequences. They're fearful of exposure, you know. So stop asking your child questions, stop the interrogation process, and foster an environment of children feeling like it's a safe place to come to my parent and tell them something, you know. So, but the advice, the advice to the parents, you know, that come, that come and say, oh, my God, my child's lying to me all the time. Well, the advice to the parent is then stop asking questions, you know. You have to foster a different kind of a environment. Yeah. And I guess I look, I might have looked at that 
differently, I guess, when you first asked that question because um, I was thinking that 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 wasn't good because that cuts off communication. But I I think that they are talking more about in the moment when you are in that right. That yeah. Get out of that mode. Don't don't keep asking questions in that mode. Not don't ever ask your child questions. That's not the point. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's no. right. But my brain's all foggy anyway. So you know. <laughs> no, your brain is perfectly fine. But but I think Phil, that you know the subject of honesty is is you know I think it's a really good one, and I think. I think the process of recovery too is just, is just learning that it's okay to even be honest with ourselves, to be able to open up, to be able to acknowledge and be honest about you know the the truth and the truth of our of our childhoods and the truth of the events of our childhood and the fact that you know it's okay to speak the truth and allow the truth to come out. Um, so I think I think honesty has to do with truth, in my opinion. There's a direct relationship. Okay. Um, will you talk about open mindedness? Open mindedness. That's one of the AA steps that I'm working on. And I guess I'm just trying to see if there's any correlation to the, um, I guess it can can correlate to child abuse because a lot of addicts suffer from child abuse. And I heard something, a statement or a quote that said, marijuana isn't the gateway drug, but abuse is the gateway drug. Right. Would you resonate with that at all? Yeah, definitely. Definitely, because I think the numbing behaviors, the addictions are a symptom and there's something always underneath. It's it's there's a causal um, there's a causal. So yeah, it's it's and in this case with the example that you, or the the phrase that you just used, you know, abuse is the causal, you know. The trauma is the abuse. The trauma is the is the you know, trauma is something that happens to us without our consent, obviously, but something that is traumatic um, and and the and the the trauma that we carry is is what has not been actually brought up and out into the open and and grieved over um, if that makes sense so I think to be open-minded is to allow oneself to accept, right? To accept yeah. the truth of what happened and then a causal, which is the abuse. The alcoholism is a symptom, right? It's a effect. Um, Yeah. Do you mind if I ask if any of you ladies have accepted what's happened to you? Oh yeah, I mean, I have accepted it, and and I don't know if Kim wants to answer that, but I can answer it. 
Oh, go ahead. Well, you know, so one thing that I've learned, too, is that I can say I've absolutely accepted the truth of my childhood. And when I say accepted, now, acceptance doesn't mean that I'm okay with it, that, you know, I agreed with it, that I've accepted it as being okay. That acceptance to me doesn't mean um, I condone it. Acceptance means that I acknowledge it as as as, a tr- as the truth of what happened to me. It's an acknowledgement of the truth. So I accept what happened to me as the truth. I'm not okay with the fact that children get hurt. I'm not, you know, I'll never agree that it was, you know, anything I deserve. You know, I'll never I'll never accept that um, children, um, I'll never be okay with the fact that children get hurt. It's not that I'm accepting it as a reality of life. I'm accepting that the truth of what happens. Um, I'm not fighting it anymore. I'm not fighting the truth. I'm accepting it as truth. Does that make sense? So, yes, I've completely accepted the truth of my childhood. How would you go about accepting it? Oh, have you accepted it, Miss Kim? If you don't mind answering, or if you do, don't mind. If you do mind, you don't have to answer. Um, yeah, I think to some degree, like, now what he says, I think, well, I mean, there's, I'm 55 years old and I can't change any of it. I can't even change the effects that it's still having at 55. But I, I think that that's what people don't understand is how the effects just linger for so long. And, um, yeah, I've accepted it. But do I get pissed off about it still? Yeah, I still do. <laughs> how I would answer that. Thank you for answering, ladies. Yeah, thank you. Um, how would you work on accepting it if you were me? Or how would you help others on the show accept it if that's something that they like to do? Well, I think that's a, a big part. A big part of the process of recovery. Um, and I know that a lot of us use different uh, modalities to work into, you know, acceptance. Um, but I guess for me, what worked for me was just starting to write things down as I remember them in a journal. You know, my earliest childhood memory of being abused, and I, would, I wrote all this down. So that helped me bring the truth to light. It helped me to bring it out and put it on paper. And so to me, writing it down and physically writing it down and seeing it on paper helped me to accept the fact that that actually happened. And that was my reality. That's the, the truth of my childhood. So to answer your question, how do I, how would I you know, encourage someone to accept, you know, their past is to actually write it down. See it in writing. You know, bring it out that way. 
um, and make it real. You know, you make it re- not that it's not real, but something about putting it in writing to me really makes it real for me. It was all there then in black and white. So that's what I would my recommend. Thanks. Well, Philip, you've brought a lot of great questions to the show tonight. Really great questions to the show tonight, Philip. Thank you. What did you people have for dinner? Oh, oh, pizza. How about you? Spaghetti. My mom's having pizza with my sister's though. <laughs> They're going out to round table. I hope you've eaten. Yummy. Love round table. <laughs> So you had to be on your own, huh? Yeah, I'm here with my mom's two dogs. Oh, I got those rope lights that I showed you, Miss Kim, on Instagram. Oh, did you? Fun. Did you put them up? Yeah, I put them up. Yeah. You like them? Are they what you thought they would be? Yes, they are what I thought they would be. Well, Kim, I hope you ate dinner. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I did. Yeah. Actually, I was making a stew, and so I I was running around all day. Although it didn't, it wasn't all the way cooked by the time I got back because I think the water boiled down too much, so the carrots were on top, and then it didn't get cooked all the way. That's right. But, um, yeah, I, I kept microwaving it until it was soft enough to eat carrots. <laughs> but um, I, like, I love it when I do that. It's a lot of prep work, but I really like it. I like that kind of meal. My family's always didn't, so I just do what I want now. That's right. Because I don't have to think about them. So, yeah. Thanks for asking. So. Well, you guys, guess what? This 90 minutes flew by, and we're almost out of time. So, Philip, I want to thank you for calling in with Great um, topics and questions. We had a great discussion tonight. We covered a lot of subjects. And Kim, as always, I love you, my Nazca sister. Thank you for being here with me tonight. And we'll hold you. um, I will hold you close to my heart. I know you're having a very rough week, especially with putting your dad into hospice. So I'm thinking about you every minute. Thank you. Uh, let everybody know who's listening in to please visit our website. A lot of different resources um, and an archive of um, this show. This show can be listened to again um, um, after about 30 minutes after we conclude. Um, this show will rest in our archives along with 4,000 of our other shows. So a lot of a lot of resources for you out there at www.nasca.org. So. Um, As I always say when I sign off, because this is true, um, and it seems simple, but it's very profound, because there are enough adult uh, eyes and ears on the planet um, to keep every single one of our children safe. There are enough adults. So if you see something and if you hear something, please say something, do something, take action. Because it's our responsibility to keep our children safe. So, Kim and Philip, thank you so very much for being on with me this evening. 
and I wish you a good rest of the week um, as we close out November and head into December, believe it or not. So thank you both very much, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Love Talk Radio.